That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the experts get it wrong. This week we focus on activists taking bi-coastal action. On the West Coast, the big NRC public meeting on San Onofre took place on February 12th. And on the East Coast, the climate change rally in Washington, D.C. last Sunday included a large contingent from the Coalition Against Nukes. We will have both these stories and several interviews coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 19, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. In Russia, when that meteor chose to hit ground, there were nuclear facilities near it. Chelyabinsk has been a closed region for a very long time. During the Soviet era, it was essentially the center of nuclear research. Top-secret facilities are all over the place there, and there is a nuclear storage facility called Mayak. Mayak is the site of the Kishtim disaster in 1957. This was a radiation contamination incident at a nuclear fuel reprocessing plant that measured as a level 6 disaster on the International Nuclear Event Scale, making it the third most serious nuclear accident ever recorded after Chernobyl and now Fukushima. It has seven plants on site that produce weapons-grade plutonium and other bomb-making components. This is the second time a large meteor has struck the same city. Fortunately, it does not appear that any of the nuclear facilities were hit in a way that damaged them to create another accident. Also in Russia, a roof collapsed at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. This was on Wednesday, February 13. The roof collapsed under the weight of snow. The affected area is about 50 meters, 165 feet, away from the sarcophagus, the shelter built shortly after the 1986 nuclear disaster to contain radiation emanating from the exploded reactor. Eighty workers were evacuated from the site as a precaution. Vladimir Chupov, head of the energy program at Greenpeace Russia, said, even if the radiation level has not changed, it's still an alarming signal. If the panels in the turbine hall have collapsed, then in principle there is no guarantee that the sarcophagus built in 1986 will not start falling apart in the near future. According to a report out of Paris, the future of nuclear energy in Europe looks very dim because, quote, nuclear is too capital-intensive, too time-consuming, and simply too risky. The report cites the fact that Romania is struggling to find investors for its Cernovoda plant. Bulgaria has been unable to lure more investors to its aborted Belin project, estimated to cost at least 6.3 billion euros. And the Lithuanian government is reviewing the plan to build a new reactor in Vizaginas, which was rejected by voters. In Finland, the troubled Olkilotu 3 nuclear plant is preparing for the possibility that it will not start operating before 2016, which is already four years overdue. The announcement sheds a dim light on the practicality and expense of the first-of-its-kind new-generation European pressurized reactor, 
which has been touted as a revolution in nuclear power production. Same old, same old. According to Bologna general manager and nuclear physicist Niels Bomer, this is yet another blow to the supposed nuclear renaissance. Costly delays and millions of euros in price overruns are completely impractical, especially when compared to pursuing cheaper renewable and alternative energy sources. There are problems up in Canada as well at Quebec's sole atomic power station, Gentilly 2, where eroding concrete has prompted federal licensing officials to suggest that any provincial attempt to refurbish and relicense the 30-year-old plant must satisfy federal concerns over the aging concrete's ability to stand up to another two or three decades of service. Over to Japan, where a Fukushima prefectural government panel said on Wednesday, February 13, that two people who were 18 or younger when the triple meltdown crisis started at Fukushima have been diagnosed with thyroid cancer, bringing the total number of cases to date to three. Ten individuals are believed to be suffering from cancer, including these three thyroid cancer cases. The average age of the person suffering is around 15. Seven of the ten, 70 percent, are female. Professor Shinichi Suzuki of Fukushima Medical University claims that it is too early to link the cases to the nuclear disaster because it took at least four to five years for thyroid cancer to be detected after the Chernobyl meltdown calamity that started in 1986. But United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health, Anand Grover, who spent 11 days in Japan during November 2012, does not agree. He says, Chernobyl is not a good example, whose study in the first three years was a blackout, so we don't have data. There was a clampdown of information that made it impossible linking them up in the first years after Chernobyl. Here's a really aggravating piece out of ABC Radio in Australia. It's a report that was released today by the environmental activist group Greenpeace pointing out that the firms that helped design and build the Fukushima reactors, such as General Electric, Toshiba, and Hitachi, are not required to pay one cent in compensation and are actually profiting from the disaster. Meanwhile, the ABC program AM learned that the operator, TEPCO, is handing out what's called temporary compensation, which victims of the meltdown have to repay. Yukiko Kamea of Hutaba, one of the recipients of this money, said, We had that money deducted from our compensation. I was surprised. TEPCO is using fraud. Why did they give it to us if we had to pay it back? Good question. Public relations is obviously the answer. The embodiment of evil numbnuts... Lady Barbara Judge, who was neither a lady nor carried the name Judge until she married her third husband, Sir Paul Judge, has been hailed as Japan's nuclear savior. She visited the Fukushima Daiichi plant in the company of members of TEPCO, and she said that it wasn't what she expected, that the mood there was fantastic. A quote, what was astonishing was the optimism and hope shown by the workers that these plants can be made safe and that they can start operating again. Barbara, what planet are you from? She is confident that nuclear has a future as part of any energy mix in Japan. 
This is in stark contrast to the mood of the Japanese public, still in a state of shock and strongly opposed to the restoration of a nuclear program. Besides commenting on her Farrah Fawcett-like hairstyle, the Independent, the source of this story, said, There's one group of people who stay stubbornly anti-nuclear, women, especially the more educated one. It's better off women who don't trust fission. To which I say, Hoya! Some more numbnuts, this from Paris, where there is an event coming up sponsored by the Japanese Embassy in Paris, Asahi, Maison Culturelle de Japan, and other organizations, that is an expo to promote the reconstruction of Fukushima. They're crazy. Here in the United States, there's a newly detected high-level radiation leak at the Hanford Nuclear Facility in Washington. Oregon's Senator Ron Wyden is planning a fact-finding trip just days after he received the news that high-level nuclear waste is leaking from one of Hanford's underground storage tanks. While the latest leak has not yet reached the groundwater or the Columbia River, scientists say it will because other radioactive waste already has. The government did not disclose how much liquid nuclear waste was gone from the facility, nor the cause of the loss. Plutonium manufactured at the site was used in the atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki in 1945. Hanford has seen bigger leaks before, but what concerns the governor's office is that this could be the first of many leaks. There's some suggestion that this leak has been going on for years rather than weeks, said Washington Governor Jay Inslee during a news conference. However, Governor Inslee went on to say, I can report that there is no immediate health risk, the disingenuous word that makes us all think we're safe when all it means is that it ain't happening now, but trust us, it will happen in years to come. And in a related story, Donna Bush, a nuclear engineer and health physicist, has filed a suit alleging that executives from the Hanford site tried to dissuade her from raising warnings about serious problems with the waste site's design. She is the third person to assert that top executives are ignoring serious problems in the plant's design. Hanford is the nation's most contaminated piece of property, home to 56 million gallons of highly radioactive sludge in underground tanks that pose a long-term risk of leaking into the Columbia River. Here's something that has changed, according to Michael Marriott of Nears.com, one of our friends within the anti-nuclear movement. He says, now that Crystal River is done, we can take the number that we use for nuclear reactors in the United States down by one to 103. Michael went on to say it looks like Kiwani will be running until mid-year, probably until what would be its next refueling date, so it might be a little premature to go down to 102. But that is in the offing and should happen perhaps by summer. And to lead into our special report this week, President Barack Obama clearly acknowledged the threat of climate change and the pressing need to do something about it in his annual State of the Union address. He highlighted the potential for solar, wind, and even natural gas. But nuclear power received not a single mention. At least he didn't say that it was part of the clean energy mix, which he has said in the past, and that is absolutely wrong. Progress is being made, even if it is progress by omission. That leads us to this week's, not interview, 
but a bi-coastal activist special. In it, we hone in on two major actions that took place in the last week. The public hearing by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on San Onofre, which took place in Southern California, and the climate change rally in Washington, D.C. First, the NRC meeting, which took place on Tuesday, February 12, in Capistrano Beach, California. Southern California Edison, SCE, and the NRC tried to game the meeting before it even started. Here's San Clemente Green member Grace Bontilo on how SCE again packed the audience. This afternoon, about 4 o'clock, there were at least 12 buses that were brought in with union workers that we believe have come as far as San Diego and San Bernardino. They were fed down at the plant, and we've been told they were given a per diem. So, of course, even grandmothers and grandfathers joined their union brothers. And uh, so I'd say about three-quarters of the hall are filled with union workers, but we're not sure how many of those union workers actually work at the plant. According to San Clemente Green, negotiations leading up to the meeting, including the NRC's agreement to a special 15-minute presentation by a coalition of grassroots organizations and a block of time dedicated to public officials who wanted to make statements at the meeting. Both were to be heard early in the proceedings. But earlier in the day, Gary Hedrick from San Clemente Green was told that neither situation would take place. Then that night, on site, NRC Representative Greg Warnick let Gary know that neither of these opportunities were going to be allowed to happen. I caught Gary Hedrick between rounds of angry discussion with the NRC. Even though I've seen this happen before, I'm still shocked. I thought it backfired on, on the unions the first time around when they dominated the audience and kept the community from speaking. And. The new twist is we've been negotiating with the NRC for weeks now to make uh, what we hoped would be a 15-minute presentation of uninterrupted logical flow of uh, communication instead of these little sound bites they give us. And that was all good till today. And all of a sudden it went from 15 to 7 minutes, and then it just had to be one speaker for that time. And we called BS. I started making calls to other people that contacted the NRC and now we're kind of back into some midpoint where I think we're all going to get to speak but it's not going to be the way we had intended and it just goes to show how the NRC is working against the public. It's a perfect example and it highlights the fact that I want to make is this is no longer about technology or steam tubes. This is about the process where NRC is withholding documents from the public that show they installed steam generators knowing there were safety defects that should have been fixed, but they didn't do it to avoid a license amendment hearing. Well, they're going to have that license amendment hearing. They may not know it yet, but they're going to. And they're going to turn over documents and data because we're not going to stop until they do. And they better get used to that. And even if they don't, tough. While the NRC succeeded in totally negating the planned presentation from the activists, the public was extremely fortunate that calls from high places at the last minute kept the elected officials' segment intact. Representatives from San Diego to Los Angeles stepped up to the plate, hitting one home run after another. Here's a letter from San Diego Mayor Bob Filner being read into the record by San Diego County Supervisor Dave Roberts. 
The NRC has previously determined that both Unit 2 and Unit 3 steam generators had similar serious design flaws and errors in computer models used for the design. The restart of Unit 2, even at reduced power, is a dangerous experiment that threatens the safety of 8.2 million Southern California 8.2 million Southern California residents living within a 30, I'm sorry, within a 50 mile radius, including much of San Diego. Any decision on the potential restart of Unit 2 should be preceded by a public, transparent license amendment hearing before the NRC with sworn testimony by experts who support or oppose the restart so all impacted residents can understand the risks involved. The Public Utilities Commission is, in, is investigating the customer rate charges associated with the year-long shutdown of songs. Any decision to restart Unit 2 should consider public safety first. But also, also the high cost to consumers for reduced power generation of 700 megawatts versus 2200 megawatts when songs was fully operative. Attorney General Kamala Harris has filed as an intervener in the CPUC hearing, and any decision to restart songs at any level should consider the reliability and cost compared to a future based on alternatives, including efficiency, load management, demand response, renewable energy, and energy storage. I urge you not to authorize the restart of songs until both a full license amendment hearing has been conducted by the NRC and the CPUC finishes its investigation. Other city officials present who spoke were Donald Mosier from the Del Mar City Council, Lee Haydu from the Del Mar City Council, Mike Nichols, who's the mayor of Solana Beach, and Dr. Rob Wildner, a representative for San Diego. This segment was such a blow to Edison that its chief nuclear officer, Pete Bobblehead Dietrich, was visibly shaken. He proceeded to publicly chastise the facilitators for allowing such a thing as honest public discourse to take place in public with the NRC. For someone who believed he was in control of the entire meeting, this came as quite a shock. Apparently, the bobbler hadn't been updated about our last-minute renegotiations with the NRC. So Dietrich had facilitator Chip Cameron, the man in charge of the microphone, ask for local elected leaders who supported the restart to please come forward. Not a single person stood up. It was truly a great moment. Several of our activists did get to speak in the first part of the evening, but they were scattered, and unfortunately the cumulative effect that we hoped for did not take place. After the break, all the union members cleared out, and we got all of our questions in. They were articulate, passionate, and honest. So the public prevailed even against extraordinary circumstances. Eloquent and well-informed speakers gave excellent testimony, foregoing the State of the Union speech and the coincidental shootout and incineration of a cop killer in Big Bear to make their point. The NRC's final meeting with the public on SCE's bad, bad, bad proposed restart of San Onofre will take place in April. Now over to the East Coast and last Sunday's climate change rally against the Keystone XL pipeline. More than 50,000 concerned citizens gathered in D.C.'s bitter cold to march, chant, 
create YouTube videos, and make their voices heard regarding the need for President Obama to reject the pipeline and take action on climate change. The good news for the anti-nuclear movement is that not one word in favor of nuclear was spoken from the stage. The bad news? The word nuclear was not spoken from the stage. Ever. Not a mention. It was truly the elephant in the living room or in this case, the mall. The coalition against nukes, CAN, was there in force, with activists from around the country. I caught up with CAN founder Priscilla Starr, who pulled together our contingent for the rally. Well, it was exciting to see a lot of people that had come uh, to the rally we had in September. That really warmed my heart. We had a lot of canners there. A lot of people from across the country showed up with all various signage. We all tried to meet in the same location by the Smithsonian Metro Station. When I first got there, which was very early, I was with an eco-socialist group, which was really fun last night. I listened to Jill Stein speak, and uh, Professor Chris Williams spoke, and Nick Davenport, and it was a wonderful forum. At first, when I got to meet up with the uh, anti-new contingent, I, I... sort of blended in with the other contingent, and then everybody got organized, started a march. We definitely stayed together, uh, like, you know, we wanted to make sure we saw our flags, no matter what, you know, who was carrying the flag, from what state, we knew where the yellow was. We kept looking to see above our heads where our group would be identified with, like, a flag. Mm-hmm. That's the way we, we knew where we were. A complete stranger took one of the flags that I got from Angela Bischoff in in Toronto, and he held it the entire time. Complete strangers fell in in with the marches, you know, just the marching. Everybody Mm -hmm. came together with a solidarity for for the right feeling of being an environmental patriot. That was the strongest feeling that I had that day, and I was very proud to be doing it. I was very proud to have been there. And it felt like I was in the right place at the right time. I'd say that our contingent was small and not something that the organizers of this campaign were paying any attention to, but they were either not interested in talking about it or they had controlled their message. So what you're referring to is the fact that while we had some fears beforehand that the green ecological, put that in quotes, message might include a pro-nuclear component because there are some people who are still confused about the fact that nuclear is absolutely not green. Instead of that being the message from the stage, there was nothing said about nuclear, not nothing a single was word. Said. Nothing was said. And I also feel like most of the people at this march had voted for Obama, which, you know, basically they were saying, we want you to know we've got your back rather than asking, have our back. They had all come there trying to have him understand, we put you in office, don't let them pull you in that direction now, Obama. That's the feeling that we got from the coordinators of this campaign. Let's make sure we tell them, we've got your back. The feeling that I had, the main feeling was that mostly people weren't interested in in the anti-nuclear message. I mean, they saw the flags, but... Mostly they kind of just looked at us and kept going. They weren't interested or we were leafleting. They weren't really that interested. I felt marginalized. I hate to use that word. Did you sense any hostility in the pushback? No, I didn't sense any hostility. I just felt people that were just not educated and not caring, you know, not that interested. There was a thrust for this rally and 
they might have thought we were coming there to bust the rally. Maybe they didn't realize that it's all part of some the same thing. As we move forward, what do you see as some of the important steps that we need to take in the process of getting our message out? I think we have to start educating. The main thing is we're pitching to the choir most of the time because we're comfortable, but we have to get uncomfortable and do a lot more educating. We have to get out there and put ourselves where other people are, like today, controlling a message and break it down for them and not be hostile towards them. I don't think they understand it yet. Then the responsibility is with us to break down our message into manageable sound bitelets that people will be able to hear and digest and comprehend and start the building process of a generalized understanding of what the issues are with nuclear, that it's not clean, that it's not green, that it's got an enormous carbon footprint, and uh, it's not good for children and other living things. I think they better start listening because it's their job to educate too because they have the power right now. They have the audience today. They have the stage and they have the power to embrace this into their movement and make it everyone's movement, but they have left it on the side. We'll turn that around. That's right. We have no choice. So no one was willing to mention nuclear, except the New York Times, which gives us the punchline to this story. On Monday, February 18, the Times ran a front-page story on the previous day's rally that read, On Sunday, thousands rallied near the Washington Monument to protest the pipeline and call for firmer steps to fight emissions of climate-changing gases. Groups opposing coal production, nuclear power, and hydraulic fracking for natural gas were prominent. Did you catch that? The National Newspaper of Record, the Gray Lady, the New York effing Times listed nuclear power along with coal production and fracking as the bad guys being prominently opposed at the rally. This is exoneration by association. Nukes are now officially one of the big three bad guys in global warming. And as time passes, few people will remember the specifics of the rally, but they will look up the story in the Times and see those words. Nuclear is on record now as something to be fought by climate change foes. Everything else was prelude. This is what history looks like. And we made it. Thanks to Priscilla Starr and all the canners for a job well done. Here's the final thought, real short. In honor of all those frozen activists in D.C. and the warmer activists in Southern California and all of us who stand against nuclear and with Mother Earth for the future health of people and the environment, we're going to go out on the song Ma Nature from my musical Armageddon, The Living End. This is something I wrote with the composer known as Grady. It will be coming up right after the credits, and I promise you it will be worth the one-minute wait. In closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 19, 2013. Material from this podcast was gathered from enenews.com, The New York Times, LA Times, kpbs.org, Bloomberg, antinuclear.net, Post Media News, Kyoto, ABC Radio Australia, The Independent, King 5 TV, World Nuclear News, San Clemente Green, Coalition Against Nukes, NEARS, and the ever-vigilant Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. Special thanks to Myla Reason, our video and photo archivist in Southern California, for the audio from the NRC meeting. 
We'll post a link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. That's where you can find all of our podcasts at nuclearhotseat.com on the blog page. We can also be found if you friend me or on either of our two Facebook pages or do all three. It costs no more. You can also get our entire library on iTunes podcasts, 88 podcasts, 88. Share us, link to us. This is the activist voice on nuclear issues. So use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Music coming up in just a few seconds. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. Stop, look around you, think, touch, smell, life is all around you, guard it well, reconsider what I'm worth, if you plan to stay on earth, I'm on nature, don't mess with me. We need all this planet. Land, sea, air Take it from your mommy You'd better care Think it through and have no doubt See how time is running out I'm on nature Don't mess with me There's no denying that slowly I'm dying Incredible Look what you're doing, it's mother you're screwing How Oedipal Stop, look around you Hear my voice Keep it up and one day I'll have no choice If your careless ways don't halt It won't be San Andreas's fault Stop and look around you Think, touch, smell Everywhere a warning Can't you tell You don't have a way to leave I will give you no reprieve I'm on Copyright 2013, Libby S. Halevi. All rights reserved, but if you want to share it online, go to it.